Hello, I'm Andrew Slee, and I've been interviewing for the Crafts Council, makers who are exploring the edges of their practice, new technologies, new applications of craft, and new collaborations across industry, science and art. Here, I'm sharing three interviews with people who are all exploring materials in new ways. Over the next 35 minutes, we'll be talking about fossils from the future and new ideas about synthetic and natural materials. We'll be asking, how do the things we make affect the planet and the materials it gives us to work with? And what makes materials valuable in the first place? Our first stop is in Leighton, in East London, to meet a craftsperson with a very unusual interest in geology. Thibaut Picasso. Uh, I'm a French-born uh, designer and visual artist. I work around materials and I try to tell stories around them. I can see some things which look like uh, cleaned up uh, rocks that you would just you know come out of the ground. Nothing that I would that I recognise. Mm-hmm. Um, they all look quite kind of exotic. Some of them maybe I would describe as kind of semi-precious. There's a lovely sort of deep blue rock over here. And then next to those, there are some, I don't know what you would call this, it's kind of machined rock. It's like a marble or something that's got smooth edges and round corners. It's obviously been through a kind of mechanical process. And then also some objects that are made out of what looks like that same kind of processed material. So um, what looks like a a brush of some sort. Mm -hmm. That's my layman's guess, but maybe you could... um, Describing Absolutely. So basically what I selected here for you uh, are two pieces of uh, this massive project that I'm leading since uh, 2013 called Crafting the Anthropocene. The first piece um, is uh, one of the collections of uh, anthropogenic specimens. So it's a cabinet of anthropogenic specimens. Anthropogenic meaning uh, man-made. So these are minerals manufacturing minerals uh, they're basically having made in my workshop so they're not found they're not real uh, minerals they're not natural these are the imagined um, fossils again mm. that we potentially could find uh, in nature in a few thousand uh, thousand years from now so this one is a mediterranean a plastic sediment. So this one talks about the absolutely ooh, crazy um, production of plastics uh, and plastic pollution mm. is currently like one of the biggest challenges that uh, we're facing. You have some blue, yellow and, um, and black parts. You have some kind of granules. Uh, you can imagine that it's been kind of layering down in, in the sea. So this kind of tells you the what's currently happening. Um, in oceans, every ocean has a, a gyre. And this kind of brings all the plastics from the coast in that central point. Uh, plastics are break down um, by the sun, by the salt and, and water. 
uh, and basically sediments of that plastic are starting to layer up in the bottom of the of the oceans. So how are you deciding how how they could be? You've you've got a you've you're, you have a scenario of, of um, plastics in the on the seafloor. How do you extrapolate towards what a, what the evidence might be? You yeah. know, I guess it all starts first from identifying and then kind of thinking what are the most characteristic um, activities, what are the most uh, important uh, materials of our, uh, like that, that kind of link to humanity and that kind of could be the trace. So really like trying to, uh, to decide what are these materials. I kind of, I listed them. So like going from, mater- from metals to plastics to bones and... I guess it's about trying to imagine in which context these materials are used and then trying to, I don't know, like think about what kind of processes could affect them. And actually the, the process that I have is really is pretty much experimental. So it's a bit like of an alchemistic, um, there's a bit of an alchemistic uh, process mm. around there. It's not completely controlled, I'm going to be honest with you. And that's the beauty of it. So it's basically playing with all these materials that I have listed, trying to work with, with heat, with pressure, um, trying to mix different types of, uh, of these materials together and see how they would react. Could you talk about, how, about your process and I guess how it relates to what you know of the actual geological processes yeah. of the wood that you're trying to kind of... Um, Simulate. This geological process is super complex, of course, and there is this very crazy um, technique uh, done in labs, which is called geomimicry, which is basically one process where scientists are trying to mimic and to replicate uh, geological processes at a very small scale, so super accelerated, but it's like, yeah, we're talking about really, really small scale. and. I think that really inspired me to re-enact, let's say, that kind of uh, of knowledge and, and process into my atelier, into my workshop with the tools that were mine. So we're talking about um, uh, hot uh, presses. We're talking about, uh, well, how to replicate heat, you know, so heat guns, uh, torches, so playing with fire. Can I ask you to describe the Anthropocene or what you mean, what that word means to you? Yeah, so the Anthropocene is the, that name, it's basically um, addressing this change that has been led by humans. So basically humans um, through industrialization mainly uh, has become a, a geological force that is currently challenging the most um, important, like the, the, the crazy forces of nature. So a, a volcano, tectonic uh, plates. Um, so we're basically challenging all that huge uh, forces that uh, surround us and that are kind of shaping the planet since millions of years. So basically we're kind of merging the timescales of life, especially of humans, the timescale of, of the Earth, which we're talking about millions of years, 
and let's say the time scale of, of industrialization, which is really recent, all this crystallizes in this idea of Anthropocene. So humans have become the major force that shapes the earth. Um, and this will have an effect on the planet for millions of years. We'll return to that conversation with Yesenia later. But first, I wanted to talk to another maker who works with geological materials. In this case, coal. To meet him, I crossed London to Makerversity, a makerspace located deep in the basement of Somerset House on the Strand. I am Andrew Merritt. I am part of Something in Sun. We are an arts and architecture practice. Um, so we do kind of large, tend to do large scale architectural projects, um, sculptures, um, mainly in the public domain. Um, and then, uh, but we sort of put our fingers in quite a lot of pies. So I wanted to talk to you about one of your projects in particular today, which is called Coal Store. And we have some objects from that project in front of us. Can you describe uh, what we're looking at? Yeah, so I guess this is a bit unusual for us because this is, after saying we do architectural projects, this is one of our smaller projects. <laughs> and they're pieces of uh, jewellery that we uh, that we created with um, two jewellery designers. We're, we're a socially and environmentally... Uh, driven practice and we wanted to do a project that uh, tried to bring climate change and the issues around it into the public domain. Oh it's lighter than I was expecting so yes. it's kind of polished and it's got um, I don't know like facets in, in coal yeah yeah so these it's are pieces of coal. of coal yeah with bioresin. So um, this has obviously been it's got a very smooth it's completely round it's like a I guess it's a donut shape or bracelet shape. Maybe mm -hmm. is the best way to describe it. Yeah, um, <laughs> bagel. Bagel. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and it's got a very flat, machined, I guess, machine polished surface. So these, the pattern I can see, these are actual pieces of coal, and they're they're held together with a, some kind of, like you say, a bioresin. Yeah, it has that sort of. Um, I don't know how you describe that. The, the when the light. When you look at so you see, sort of see it when you look at oil slicks as well, they, it, the light becomes kind of multicolored. Yeah, yeah. Do people, um, if if you show this to people and don't tell them what it is, do they know what it is? It's not obvious to me that that's coal. Uh, no, no, not uh, like yeah, and like you say, it's kind of quite weirdly light. And I guess because you know, like that, that's a piece of coal. You just look at it and just presume it's reasonably heavy, just because it's black and mm. and looks like a bit of rock. But then when you hold it, it's actually lightweight. Mm. Did you have to go through like a research process to figure out the, the technique to make the material a viable one for jewellery? Yeah. And also, so you, you had all the, the sort of dust that comes off it, which um, in a way uh, was inhibiting the, the, the resin. And then um, also the thing that we found was that uh, the heat from the body is quite substantial. Mm. And if you don't get the resin makeup right, the resin and the coal makeup right, it will... Um, the, the first pieces of jewellery that we were making were starting to uh, essentially melt. What about this piece? This is like a multicoloured... Yeah, so this piece is uh, has got shell embedded in it and there's little commentaries going throughout the jewellery. We had a jewellery store as part of this project as well. 
and people, the public would come in. We um, advertised it as just a normal jewellery store. You'd come in, see these beautiful pieces um, and talk to the, um, the sales assistant. And then through talking, talking about the jewellery to the sales assistant, you'd learn about climate change. Part of the reason why there's shell in the coal is because coal is uh, increasing carbon monoxide in the air, dioxide, uh, which is making the seas more acidic because the seas soak up, soak up that. And one of the problems of the sea becoming more acidic is that it's um, reducing the, the thickness of shells on crustaceans in the sea. And so that's why we've got shell in here, because there's, like I say, there's little stories going mm. throughout it. This one here is uh, kind of like a rosary bead um, because there was a religious undertone for the project as well. Could we move from one, one everyday material to another? I, was, I wanted to ask you about plastic. Yeah. I've heard that you collect plastic or you're interested in plastic and pl plastic waste in particular. That interest has come through a project that we're doing currently in Milton Keynes, um, which will be creating a large sculpture uh, we're going to fossilise a house with all the kind of materials of our time, plastic, concrete, aluminium. And so I've just started to understand about the Anthropocene, essentially, and just how we've kind of, up until now, it's kind of been man playing with nature's materials. And now, na now nature is starting to manipulate man's materials because all these bits of plastic are kind of washing up on the beach and through the sea and the heat from from the sun and the sand, they're slowly kind of manipulating all these uh, bits of plastic and they're becoming quite natural. So you can hold a piece of this plastic and uh, it looks like it's lava rock or something like that, but actually it's plastic. So do you think that the distinction between natural materials and man-made materials is a really vital one in craft and making? There are makers who will gravitate towards one or the other, or they'll, they'll be very... Um, intentional about using one or the other and we also ascribe all sorts of properties to natural or synthetic materials you know we might think that natural materials are um, more um, healthy for example and we might think that synthetic materials are more modern mm. do you think that distinction is becoming less relevant or less true yeah like what I view as a healthy material is something that's good for the planet if you can clean up the planet by using plastics that are currently being thrown away, that's a healthy material, but chopping up a bit of rock that takes a load of energy to, to uh, smooth down and cut, cut from the cliff edge and whatever, that's not healthy, even though it's natural. What about the qualities that they have? I'm thinking about like a, maybe like a turned wooden bowl or something. It has a sort of feel in the hand that we prize. You know, we like the feel of it, people talk about, especially things like wooden, wooden things, mm. but also um, textiles, you know cashmere for example versus say acrylic are there technical limitations that we can overcome through better processes or are they things that we just need to reassess in the same way that we might reassess the value of coal or gold as being valuable materials but yeah i kind of i think all that's quite subjective though we used to view things that were heavy as as valuable whereas now you know like a trainer that's lightweight is going to cost you more uh, a phone that's lightweight is going to cost you more so it's kind of that's changed and then I think it's also um, like a wooden bowl I wouldn't I'm not, I wouldn't personally I wouldn't uh, feel that's kind of nicer than a plastic bowl if I know that the wooden bowl has got a worse process behind it whereas it, it, it plastics could I can see 
plastics is a beautiful thing still, just because if, if, depending on how it's been made. Yeah, and I suppose we've been through that with things like ivory, which people would have, you know, I don't mm. know. Yeah, exactly. That's ago, a great example. Yeah. yeah, they would have thought probably holding up an ivory letter opener and thought how what a beautiful thing it was. And now you pick up something. Of ivory. It's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. one more stop on this tour of London and this time it's to meet someone who spends her working life learning about and helping others understand materials and how we can use them to make meaning in the design of products by crafting environments and in the creation of new materials. Hello. Hi it's Andrew to see you Caroline. Hi Andrew. I'll open the door and then come down and meet you. Okay thanks. Hello. My name's Caroline Till. I'm a co-founder and co-director of Franklin Till Studio. I would definitely say that our definition or our notion of what is natural and what's synthetic in terms of materiality is is hugely shifting. I think we're increasingly at a point where people are starting to appreciate that I mean effectively everything has been created by by us by humans so everything is natural in origin at some point everything does come from you know an animal or a vegetable or a mineral and particularly you know with the discussion that we're having around this notion of the Anthropocene of of actually um, industrial uh, whether it be waste or you know material if you look at the plastic in the oceans for example is um, a, a key topic of conversation you know if that then gets um, transformed or processed through, uh, you know, through the oceans or through through natural impacts, and then transformed into a, an, another material. Is is that natural or is that synthetic? So, I think um, nature is, you know, posing those questions to us, as well as obviously the way that we are impacting our natural environment. I think we're also at a point at which there was very traditional. Um, connotations with with natural as um perhaps more ecologically friendly more sustainable and had more um soul perhaps and people viewed synthetic materials to be um um perhaps more you know technological um but actually i think we're at the point at which um you know there's such a blurring um that you, you can now you know biologically synthesize a, a natural material um you know some of my colleagues at central st martin's that are doing some amazing work with with living systems and actually looking at, at manipulating um biological material to 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 grow um you know you can do that on the very sort of um synthetic biology scale to to uh, you know and then once you've once you've engineered growth does is that natural or is that synthetic mm. And also synthetic materials have amazing potential for a sustainable future. I mean, if very much the conversation in sustainability is moving towards circularity, is actually how can we keep things in a, in a circular loop rather than this designing for obsolescence as we seem to be doing, a sort of this take, make, discard, linear model? How can we perhaps stop working in that sense but move towards keeping everything in a closed loop? And often synthetic materials have amazing potential for that. And I think we're even seeing the um, the 
the sort of the definition of what we consider to be a raw material changing um one of the most uh, amazing projects that we came across and we've just been writing about is called uh plastic glomerate which is basically um a, a geologist found um on beaches i think it was in hawaii a a sort of new rock i suppose which had been created by um it was washed up on the shore so it obviously been um created through um you know being in, in the sea and being battered by the waves but effectively it was this combination of of a, a natural mineral with um elements of plastic embedded in it and it was this sort of this real marker of uh, effectively the anthropocene the 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 geological age that we're living in in which man's activity on the earth is starting to actually impact our, our geological strata and starts to raise questions for makers actually what what is a raw material what is a natural raw material what is a synthetic raw material and you know importantly how do we process these things how do we work with them um what are the tools what are the processes we use and, and what do we utilize them for what do we make them for As Caroline said there, much of the interest in these materials that seem to cross the divide between natural and synthetic crystallises around this idea of the Anthropocene, the age which we've created and we're living through, in which our own activities have a geological impact. Given that this impact is literally material, perhaps it's no surprise that makers are using or creating anthropogenic materials to tell stories about the way we live today. And in fact, both Yesenia's and Andrew's projects deliberately try to tell some of these stories. Let's return to Yesenia and examine some of the other specimens she had to show me. On the table in front of us, I can see some machined, almost looks like a kind of marble, like an architectural, like almost like building blocks or something. Can you describe what these objects are? Yeah. So these objects are part of the Cumbrian Bone Marble project that project started with a conversation with a geologist, Jan Zalazevich, um, when I was actually asking them what would be, what kind of event could actually be recorded in the earth and be visible in a few, like in the future, in the far future. And he gave me this example of um, the foot and mouth outbreak uh, that happened in 2001. Uh, in Cumbria. Cumbria was the most affected region uh, in the UK uh, and it saw uh, millions um, of animals um, being killed, burned and then um, buried in pits in one particular place called uh, Great Orton. And that was kind of a traumatic uh, experience, a a traumatic episode um, for farmers and, and local people. Through my work, I'm trying to, and through these pieces, I'm trying to imagine what would be the the actual, the resulting material uh, of that event. And I imagined this marble. It has bone embedded into it, a burned, uh, incinerated bone, real bone. Imagining a future in which potentially um, miners would excavate that very rare material that uh, we could compare um, to the Carrara uh, Italian marble. So that's a massive quarry in, in Italy. And mm. what if Great Orton became the, the future Carrara um, of Brittany, of, of the UK? 
in that scenario, I'm basically imagining that craftsmen um, would use this material uh, in order to, like, to make artifacts uh, and potentially valuable artifacts, because that's we're talking about a rare material uh, that potentially would be distributed around the world uh, at that time. The foot and mouth outbreak currently still is seen as a traumatic experience for, for people, uh, for the nation. But seeing it with a bit more perspective in time, like this is an advent of new matter, of new resources, mm. uh, potentially uh, very valuable in the future for craftsmen. And, and they would use actually this material for making our artifacts, our objects in the future. While Yesenia's Cumbrian bone marble perhaps tells its story slowly through the material itself, Andrew's coal store project uses in part the experience of buying the jewellery to tell the story. Coal store has existed so far as a pop-up shop in Somerset House and they plan to roll it out to more retail locations so the material can speak to more people. Like all our projects we want to tell stories but this one was very much sort of uh, literally telling a story through the salesperson. They would literally be telling telling you stories about um, why this, why the products are what they are. Um, and the the way that we did it was um, we had uh, a, again kind of like a, a, along the religious lines. Uh, the jewelry range was along uh, along one line, and then behind that was a black sheet that you could just about see through. And then behind that was the sales assistant. And it was kind of like a confession booth. Um, <laughs> just because we kind of feel there's, a, there's an element of guilt around climate change. You know, like uh, you can pay off your carbon footprint or offset your carbon footprint um, through um, giving more money or um, for buying an airline, airplane ticket and stuff like that. There is definitely an element of guilt. So we kind of brought that into play. And I suppose, as an object, jewellery is an interesting one because especially once it becomes old and becomes like a family, um, an heirloom, say, it's it's also a vehicle through which stories are told through generations or between friends. So people will often tell the story of how they came by a certain ring or who had it before mm. them and so on. And in that way, you, it's a good way of um, passing a story between people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of, it's something that you can because we were we were wondering about things that maybe you could have in your home and stuff like that but like you say it's kind of it, I think there's a there's a, it's easy to tell stories through jewelry and because you're wearing them as well so you're going to go out people more people are going to see them because they're on you I guess that links back to the sort of movement element of the project and we thought it was a good insti instigator to try and create a movement materials and making have always been used to tell stories I think perhaps we've forgotten that in more recent years or we've become a bit more divorced from that in, in the move to, to towards mass production and that has disillusioned us to an extent and so we are really concerned with getting reconnected with with materials and tactility and and also we're at a point where people are disillusioned by um, mass manufacture you know the, the notion of things being rolled off a, a factory line in in their hundreds of thousands is perhaps not as 
desirable as as it you know was in in very recent years because people want to feel a sense of individuality and they want to feel that they're actually you know the objects that they surround themselves with are speaking about them and not you know this sense of sort of globalized homogenized consumer culture so i think yeah the concern for materials to speak of you know their origin or to speak of the time in which they were created and the way in which um, the materials are being processed and the objects that they're making has it become hugely important you know sense of provenance people are totally enamored with skill which is an amazing opportunity for makers that the artisan is really being lauded and again there's a you know a big opportunity but a huge onus on the maker to be able to tell their story effectively to be able to say you know this this is my expertise this is the story of making this is the processes that I go through because people want to feel connected and engaged with that and I think they're willing to to pay a premium for in terms of objects that they surround themselves with if that is you know effectively communicated it gives them a you know sense of of feeling good as as opposed to buying something in a store that you know hundreds of other people would own as well It's easy to think about our material relationship with nature as being one way. We leave a footprint behind. We mine materials from the earth in order to create things, and we pollute the earth when we discard them. But what these makers show is that we now live in a more complex age. We have the power to create a geological impact on the materials of the earth, And in turn, the Earth can exert a powerful force on the synthetic materials that we create. Makers can use these materials to create objects with meaning, objects that tell stories. And by understanding the values that we all ascribe to these materials, they can create uh, new stories and surprising meanings. My thanks to Yesenia, Andrew and Caroline for speaking with me. If you'd like to find out more about their work, you can find all the links on the Crafts Council website. The music you've heard is by Komiku. The production was by me, Andrew Slee, for the Crafts Council. Thank you for listening.